Does it make a difference who your father is? They say sometimes, don't they, that you can't truly understand the person until you've met their parents. Uh, I know that uh, if any of you guys have, have met Jonathan Carswell, uh, who runs 10ofthose.com, uh, uh, I remember meeting him a, a few years ago, and immediately um, you could tell that he was his father's son. You don't really get Jonathan until you understand Roger Carswell, his father. Uh, some people, you just need to know their father, need to know their parents uh, to get to understand them. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is repeatedly called the Son of David. That's one of the titles that's given to him by the crowds, by people calling out to him. And if we want to get our head around that term, in order to get our head around Jesus better, that's our goal, isn't it? To love him, to adore him more, as we look at all the different aspects of his character, of his person. If we want to get our heads around that, we really need to understand, first of all, who David was. And what it means, really, from the Old Testament to be his son. After all, if you think about it, uh, his earthly father was Joseph, wasn't it? But actually, lots of people called him as the son of, of David. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Uh, in this series, we aim to see, as I've said, the and saviour, Jesus Christ, in his multiple <coughs> perfections. Last time we looked at him as the son of man. And this evening, we're going to look at him as the son of David. So the first thing we're going to do is head back to the Old Testament and see what it meant to be the son of of David in the Old Testament. So, as I said, we need to understand David, uh, really, from the Old Testament. So, a few things about David for us to understand. Firstly, David the man. David is known, isn't he, throughout the Old Testament as the man after God's own heart. Now, when I was younger, I used to read that a little bit wrong. I used to think that he was after God's own heart, like you might go after a, a you know, a, 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 a chocolate bar at a supermarket, you know, going after things. But that's not what it means at all. It means it was a man according to God's heart. He was, on the, he was the one on whom God chose to set his love. One who pleased God. One who God loved unconditionally. Even if David had never been made king, he would still have been a man after God's own heart. He was also a man of faith. Again, before he was declared publicly to be king, he struck down Goliath. He fought the king's armies for God. He was a man of faith even before he was king. But David was king. Certainly the greatest king of Israel as a united kingdom. Probably the greatest of any of the kings of Israel or Judah. He was certainly, as you read through the Old Testament, the benchmark by which all the other kings uh, are measured up to. So to be the son of David, the great king, would mean to be a great king yourself. And that's the picture that we see throughout the Old Testament. But he wasn't just a man or just a king. David was a psalmist as well. David's love for God and his rich devotional life is seen on the pages of the Psalms. But that also means that David was a prophet. David is one of the most quoted figures in the New Testament from the Old Testament. As he wrote prayers, songs and poems, God used him to write prophecies and truths beyond his comprehension. So David was a mouthpiece of God as the psalmist. But most significant for our study this evening, um, David received a promise. And that's what we see in 2 Samuel uh, 7 that uh, Laura read to us before. And you'll see in that passage that God promises David several things. Firstly, God promises David that the offspring, uh, offspring will come after him from his own body and that he will establish his kingdom. So you see that down in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring afterwards, who shall come from your body. 
and I will establish his kingdom. He's promising there a dynasty to David. He's promising offspring after him who will stand in his place. But he also promises in this passage that his offspring will build a house for his name. Um, You see that in verse 13? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It starts to get a bit more personal. It's not just about a sort of line of David. This is someone definite who will build a house for his name. This is usually understood as the temple that David was wanting to build to God that prompted this promise from God. But God has a specific person in mind, not just a dynasty, but a figure, the offspring of David, the son of David. And did you see in that verse 13 as well that he promises to establish the throne of his kingdom forever? This offspring of David, the son of David, will have an everlasting kingdom. The throne of his kingdom will be eternal. And this starts to leave the realms of this world, doesn't it? This isn't just a normal uh, promise of a child. This is something huge. It sounds specific, doesn't it, to a person that will reign forever. And then you see as well that he promises to be a father to him. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This ranks up the promise even higher, doesn't it? The son of David will be the son of God. That's what he's saying there. His steadfast love will not depart from him, he says. So this is not going to be another Saul rerun, with God sort of starting with him and then rejecting him. This son will be disciplined as any legitimate son would be. It's saying he's a real son. His father treats him as a real father would treat a real son. And it would be beaten by the rods of men. So as we read this, we start to wonder who is this son of David? Who is this figure who will rule forever, who will build a house for God's name? And just as we did last time, looking at the son of man, looking at the sons of Adam, uh, we started to look through a few different candidates uh, for that role. Well, it seems natural to look at the sons of David, doesn't it? David's firstborn was a man called Ammon. And uh, He really isn't promising at all. Uh, He rapes his half-sister and then he's murdered by his brother. So no forever throne for him. No house for God's name from him. And then there's Absalom. Not like his father at all, really. Even though uh, his name means father of peace, he really isn't a father of peace. He seizes the throne, unlike David who waits for the throne from Saul. He murders his brother, the one we've just spoken of. And it almost sounds a bit like Cain and Abel, doesn't it? Another repeat of that as his sons uh, kill each other. So he is not the heir of the promise. He dies as well at the hands of David's men. So he's not this special forever king. But there are others, well, there are 19 sons of David. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of them. Um, But we do come across Solomon. Now, Solomon sounds more promising. He does build a house for God's name. He builds the temple. Uh, We see that uh, in the rest of uh, the Old Testament, the way that he builds Solomon's temple, it's even known as, isn't it? He starts off as a wise ruler. So remember, David was a great king. Well, Solomon starts off that way. And he refers to himself in that way as he writes the wisdom literature. So Proverbs 1, verse 1. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Or Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of jerusalem do you see even in as he's writing uh, literature there even as he's giving his wisdom he's referring to himself as the son of david 
But Solomon does not reign forever. In fact, the second part of his reign really goes off the rails, doesn't it? And because of him, the kingdom is torn in two. He does start to give us a pattern of what the son of David should be, but he doesn't take it all the way. He falls by the wayside and doesn't fulfill this great vision that there is for the son of David. Now, in the rest of the history books after uh, this passage, um, the title is alluded to again and again, but just generally for the kings of, of Judah that follow. It's usually used in the positive sense for good kings. So you get this repeated refrain uh, through the book of one and two kings. And he walked in the ways of his father, David. So, for example, one Kings fifteen eleven, And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David, his father, had done. So David there is, is seen as the model. If they do good, they do like David. That's the model. So to be a son of David there was to be a good king. But the term really comes to life when you read in the prophets. That's really where that term comes to its head in the Old Testament, just as the son of man did last time. The phrase is not used so often, but the idea is all over the place as you read through the prophets. So I'm just going to give you a quick tour uh, of some of these uh, quotes from the prophets that speak of David's line. He's forever ruling righteousness and justice on David's throne. So Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Don't worry about turning all these up, uh, but do take note of them if you want to look at them later. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. So do you see there, it's not the son of David so much. It doesn't use that phrase, but it uses the idea of a branch of David coming off David's tree, if you like. Same idea, but different words. But it's a good king who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah, Isaiah 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Do you see again the idea of a new David figure? That is coming, who does justice and righteousness. David 9, verse 7, again, we often get this at Christmas as well, but it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, this idea of one who will sit on David's throne, who will be a good king who will rule in justice and righteousness. And this one in Isaiah, a little bit more obscure. Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind, uh, bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will paste on his shoulder the key of the house of David, he shall, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honour to his father's house. So it's quite flowery language there, isn't it? With the key of David on his shoulder. But really, again, you've got this vision of a powerful king. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. He's secure and will become a throne of honour in his father David's house. 
Ezekiel also picks up on the phrase. So Ezekiel 37 verse 24. This is speaking of the future. My, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So Ezekiel just goes with naming him as David who is coming. Not just the son of David, but another David figure who will be a shepherd to them. Now, interestingly, in that passage as well, you find out that God will be their shepherd. So you have the shepherd king, like David was a shepherd king, who's also God, picking up on that language from 2 Samuel 7. Hosea, Hosea 3 verse 5. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So again, this is speaking of Israel coming back from the exile. And yet they're seeking David, their king. That was hundreds of years before. But there's this new David figure, the son of David, who will arise. Amos, Amos 9 verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So he's saying there'll be a new house for David, a new David figure. I mean, that's just a smidgen. I'm not going to read you all the quotes that talk about David from the prophets. But that gives you a good idea that it's literally all over the place, isn't it? This idea of the son of David. He almost becomes a mythical figure who will arise at the end of the world when the exile is over to rule his people. One who will rule forever in justice and righteousness. Fulfilling that prophecy that David would never lack a man on the throne so he would be a great king who would defeat their enemies and bring peace and justice and mercy and all the way through we see that he would come from david's line so now let's zip over to the new testament that's sort of the old testament bringing uh, bringing up this picture but what does it say in the new testament well the new testament uses the term in a couple of ways but nearly always associated with jesus the one exception to that uh, is in Matthew 1 verse 20, uh, where it's used of Joseph. So he said, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So here David is, is used in the Old Testament sense as one in David's line, if you like. But all the other times it's applied to Jesus. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about Jesus, what we're told in the Bible He's of David's line. We're told that both in the genealogy in Matthew and we're told that the genealogy in Luke as well. He's born in David's town, the little town of Bethlehem. It wasn't just so he could have Christmas carols. Uh, it was to show us actually that he would be that new David born in David's town. And he is heir to David's throne. He's the son of David in the sense that Joseph, his adopted father, was. And throughout the gospel, the term is used of him by others so Jesus doesn't use this term for himself but others use the term of him Jews and Gentiles alike call him the son of David which should help us see that this is significant but in the New Testament when people use that name it's nearly always associated with acts of mercy let me show you from Matthew's gospel Matthew 9 verse 27 and as Jesus passed on from there two blind men followed him crying aloud have mercy on us, son of David. So here we have two blind men. Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew twelve twenty two to 23. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. 
and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So Jesus has just shown mercy to this man, he's just healed him. And their response is, could this be the son of David? Matthew fifteen twenty two, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So again, linking with the idea of mercy and the son of David. And then finally, Matthew 20, verses 30 and 31. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, all the way through, there's this link with the son of David and the bringing of mercy. There seems to be an expectation that when the son of David comes, there will be a new era of healing, of peace and of mercy. And if you think about it, the people who actually asked Jesus for mercy were not disappointed, were they? Actually, Jesus showed them mercy, showing them that this new era had arrived in him. So Jesus, as the son of David, is the one who shows mercy, the one who brings in this new glorious Davidic kingdom, where there is the possibility of mercy, where people can be healed and restored. We do even get parts that refer most directly to the Old Testament prophets calling Jesus the son of David. So it's not just that other people call him it, the Bible calls him it as well. So Revelation uh, 5 calls him the root of David. So Revelation 5 verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Do you see there the idea of this great king who would come and defeat our enemies? Luke 1, 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see how that's specifically picking up on the prophecies from 2 Samuel 7 and the prophets? So he truly is the Son of David from 2 Samuel 7. Descended physically from David, as promised. Son of God, literally. Beaten by the rods of men, only to rise again, that he might rule forever. And his throne and kingdom are established forever, just as God promised to David. But what about the house for God's name? That was quite specific, wasn't it? It seemed to be speaking about Solomon, and the Old Testament talks about it that way. But if you think about it, Jesus did build a house for God's name. In fact, Jesus, in one sense, was the temple, wasn't he? He speaks of his body being the temple, the place for God's name, where God dwelt with his people. And he also built a house, didn't he, for God's name? The church, the temple of God, a place where God dwells with his people, being built into that spiritual temple. So he truly is that special son of David that we read about in 2 Samuel. Even before he is born of Mary, sorry, even before he's born, Mary is told that he's the one, isn't he? Uh, isn't she? The son of David, who is the son of God. That's the part that the people of his day couldn't get their head round. 
You see, they thought that the son of David um, would just be another David. They didn't understand that he would be an even greater figure, it would seem, who was doing something on a colossal level. They just thought the son of David would come and kick out the Romans. But Jesus uses this in his discussions with his opponents. We said that he doesn't directly call himself the son of David, but Jesus does talk about the son of David. So uh, Matthew 22 verses 41 to 46 is repeated in the other Gospels. He challenges his opponents about their understanding of the son of David. He says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare uh, to ask any more questions. Now, you see from that passage that the son of David had come to mean Christ. And you can see why, can't you? David was the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament, literally his Christ. So it stands to reason that the new Christ would be the son of David. But here's what they'd missed. The son of David wasn't just going to be another earthly king. Otherwise, how could he then be greater than David if he was David's descendant? Uh, That wouldn't make any sense. He'd rank lower than David. But he was David's Lord. He literally was the son of God. He literally was God in a body. So he could rank above David, even though he was should be below David because he was his great, 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 great grandson in the same way that you're supposed to, as a parent, be above your children in a way. Aren't you supposed to have authority over them or over your grandchildren? But Jesus had authority over David. He was David's Lord, even though he was the son of David because he was God himself. Um, the only other time in the New Testament you get this phrase used uh, is the one that we sung a bit earlier on, where uh, Hosanna to the son of David is sung to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. Well, here is the messianic title proclaiming the Christ. It's taken from Psalm 118, though it's adapted to sing of the Christ of the Messiah. It was quite normal for Psalms 116 and up to 118 to be sung as pilgrims entered the city. So it's possibly one of those cases where they actually sung more than they knew or spoke better than they knew. They asked, they're asking by saying Hosanna to the son of David for the Messiah to come and rescue them, to come and show them mercy. When actually the Messiah was right in front of them, he'd already come to them. So what does all that teach us about his relationship to us? That's the last thing we're going to look at. Son of David and the church. Now, it would be really clear cut to say that now David becomes our father and we become sons of David. Uh, As we said last time, there's a sense in which we become uh, sons of man in Christ. Uh, We take on his nature. Now, there's some merit to saying that we're the sons of David. So uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, uses David as our father. So who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. So it seems as though in Acts, yeah, David has become our father, not just Jesus' father. However, it is used by the Jews in Mark 11, 
So Mark 11 verse 10, blessed is the coming of uh, the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So it does seem as though the Jews use that term as well, calling David their father as well. But it is still true that in Christ, David is our father and that we are his sons. And as we saw last time, as we looked at the son of man, we do inherit the kingdom in the end. We do reign uh, as David reigned, as the son of man reigns. And in one sense, as we're looking at the same figure, as we're looking at Christ, you'd expect there to be some overlap. After all, the glorious son of man who reigns is also the glorious son of David. So what, are, what do we learn from this? What, what do we add to our understanding? Well, if you think about those quotes from the Old Testament, if you think about the expectation of the son of David and what people were expecting from him, we learn more what his reign will be like. You see, as we saw last time, we just saw that there was a man on the throne. We saw that he'd been given power and authority, but we weren't taught much about the way that he would rule. What would it be like to live under the rule of this son of man? Well, we find out as we see him in the son of David. One who has power and authority, yes, but what does he use it for? He uses it for righteousness. He uses it for justice. He uses it for peace. He is the one who will usher in an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity. He is the one who will cause the people of God to obey and not turn away from him. He is the one who will reign in steadfast love towards his people and wisdom that only God could give. He is the one who shows mercy to his people. So we see by this that he's not just the powerful son of man, but the merciful son of David. So we can be thankful that we are subjects of the wise and merciful son of David. And we can seek to emulate him too, as we have David as our father. We said last time that because we're in Christ, uh, we need to be taking on the nature of Christ. We need to be growing more like Jesus, as we're seeing this morning. So as we think about his character as the son of David, we should be seeking to show mercy. As we think about his wisdom as the son of David... We should be seeking to be wise, making wise decisions. As we think about him as the Prince of Peace that would bring this period of peace to his people, we should be seeking to be peacemakers, not stirring up strife, but seeking to see peace amongst one another. We should be seeking to be sons of our father. Because as we said at the beginning, it matters who your father is, doesn't it? We take on their nature, whether we like it or not, don't we? So let's be seeking to be merciful sons of David and look forward to his rule uh, when we get to glory knowing that we will reign with him as our merciful and loving king well let's uh, pray father God thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ father thank you that he showed mercy uh, to people who were in need father thank you that he wasn't just powerful but that he was kind as well father thank you that he wasn't just uh, clever but that father he was righteous as well father as he sought to teach people father as he sought to uh, win them um, father as he sought to see them saved father we pray that you give us the same merciful heart father we pray that we would be men and women after your own heart father loved by you and pleasing to you help us to do this in all we do we pray in jesus name amen